Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. After living through this pandemic and lockdown, people have definitely developed certain habits. We make sure we're stocked up on food, supplies, and, most importantly, toilet paper. And a new development is finally getting out of the house. After being stuck inside, kept away from other humans, we can be out in public again. One of my favorite things to do is to go to the movies. The popcorn, the big screen, the closeness of strangers... It's just invigorating. And when the lights dim and the screen lights up, we're transported into another world. And that's what theater goers were feeling at the Paramount on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. They were there to see the film War and Peace. And the place was packed with 1,500 guests. When the lights dimmed, instead of experiencing the sights and sounds of Russia, theater goers instead heard a loud bomb go off and smoke completely filled the air. This was one of just many bombs set off by one man over a decade. He struck fear into the hearts of New Yorkers, making them terrified to do anything in public. This is much like we felt when COVID hit. And ultimately, it would take a very unconventional approach to trying to solve this case that would eventually change the world of criminal profiling. This week, I'll talk about the Mad Bomber of New York. 
For research, I used several articles, including the main one that I used was by Michael Cannell for the Smithsonian. There was also one by Michael S. Rosenwald in the Washington Post, one by Sam Roberts in the New York Times, another in History Daily by Wayne Flint, as well as Wikipedia and Murderpedia. It all started with an angry letter. It read in all capital letters, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. It was signed with the initials FP, which we would all find out would later mean fair play. This is according to its author. The note was wrapped around a bomb and was left sitting on a windowsill at Consolidated Edison Power Plant in 1940. Luckily, it was found before it was detonated. A similar second bomb was located near the Con Edison headquarters, which also didn't detonate or was a faulty bomb. This is perhaps because they were very crudely made. Inside the bomb were brass pipes, which were filled with gunpowder with an ignition made of sugar and flashlight batteries. Speculation is that they were just duds because if they had detonated, the notes wouldn't have been found. Police then received a letter just shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. This was, of course, on December 7th, 1941. And once again, the note was signed F.P., It stated that the writer felt very patriotic and promised not to make any more bombs while the United States was still at war. It read again in all capital letters, I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. And true to his word, between 1941 and 1945, no bombs were made. But, you know, he did state he was being patriotic. The whole country at this time was unified in its support of soldiers fighting in the war, and apparently this guy was too. He did, however, replace sending bombs with very bizarre letters that he sent to everyone from police to the newspapers. And sure enough, right after the war... The man who would then be dubbed the Mad Bomber of New York resumed his activities. From 1951 to 1956, he made a total of 33 pipe bombs, which he placed in very public places, ranging from theaters to bus terminals and even the subway. Out of all of these bombs, 22 exploded, injuring more than 15 people. And what's more, it put fear into the hearts of New Yorkers. After surviving Hitler and fighting off Japan, now they were being tortured by a domestic terrorist. Each note always referred to Con Edison and how the bomber wanted revenge against them. The majority of the bombs never caused injury, but this is perhaps due to the notes always being sent ahead of time as a warning. It wasn't until December 2nd, 1956, at the Paramount Theater showing a war and peace that detectives knew this bomber was upping the ante. The theater was packed with a crowd ranging from children to the elderly. Even though no one died, this was a wake-up call. What was absolutely terrifying was that the theater bombs had been planted into the upholstery of the theater seats. It was a miracle that no one had been critically injured or killed. By now, the press was all over the story. One newspaper called the bomber the greatest individual menace New York City had ever faced. 
Police Commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy now called this the greatest manhunt in the history of the police department. Up to this point, police assumed this was most likely the work of a disgruntled Con Edison employee, but they were never able to produce any leads. The bomber always used generic materials for his bombs, and he made sure to never leave fingerprints. That's when it was decided that an unconventional approach was needed. Captain Howard Finney decided to approach a man named James A. Brussel for help. Now, Brussel wasn't a cop or a bomb expert. He was a psychiatrist. So all you true crime fans out there are thinking, so what? Police consult profilers all the time. Well, back in the 1950s, this was unheard of. Where today, this is a commonplace activity. In 1956, the police never would have consulted a psychiatrist. In fact, when the idea was proposed, Finney almost became the laughingstock of the department. This is, of course, many years before criminal profiling would become the backbone of investigating serial offenders. Captain Finney was really going out on a limb, hoping that a psychiatrist might be able to decipher what was going on in this man's head. Dr. Brussel worked with the New York Department of Mental Hygiene, dealing with many mentally ill and criminal subjects. And his caseload was overwhelming and growing by 3,000 in one year. In his free time, the psychoanalyst gave lectures and he had a private practice, so he was a very busy man. Initially, he turned the bomb squad captain down. Plus, the fear of testing his ideas in such a high-profile manner just frightened him. But because he himself had followed this case over the years, he eventually agreed to assist in the hunt for the mad bomber. James Brussel was quite a character. He had his pencil mustache and slicked back hair. In his free time, he composed an operetta called Dr. Faustus of Flatbush, which he performed at a psychiatric convention. Perhaps he had been approached by Finney because of his publications that were out about such notable figures as Tchaikovsky, who he said had an Oedipus complex, to Mary Todd Lincoln. This is a guy who, after work at night, relaxed by composing crossword puzzles for the New York Times. To begin the job of figuring out the bomber, Dr. Brussel started with what he called reverse psychology. He would start with the bomber's letters and actions and try to deduce what type of person he was. That would lead to narrowing down his race, nationality, personality, even to what drove him to commit his crimes. Finney had given the psychiatrist all the evidence he could. He had everything from photographs of the crime scenes to the actual letters that he sent. Now, Captain Finney was the opposite of the quick-talking doctor. Finney was a very reserved man, so the two made quite the pair working together. Immediately, Brussel felt the sense of looking for a needle in a haystack. He said of the bomber, quote, He seemed like a ghost, but he had to be made of flesh and blood. Somewhere, people knew him, saw his face, heard his voice. He sat next to people on the subways and buses. He strolled past them on the sidewalks. He rubbed elbows with them in stores. Though he sometimes seemed to be made of night stuff, unsolid, bodiless, he patently did exist, end quote. So after two hours of examining all these satchels of evidence before him, Dr. Brussel came to his conclusion of what the bomber would be. And this is utterly fascinating. He began by saying the man would be a paranoid schizophrenic. 
Most are antisocial and consumed by hatred for their enemies, real or imagined. He said, we can all hold grudges, but a paranoid schizophrenic will keep that grudge in their mind forever. Since most signs of schizophrenia don't develop until early adolescence, he presumed this man would be, by now, in his mid to late 40s, when the symptoms would have completely taken over the man's mind. Those with paranoid schizophrenia see themselves as flawless, and they want everyone to see them this way. They are very serious about following the rules, and they expect everyone to also follow the rules. He then said the man would be neither fat nor skinny, and this was due to the findings of German psychiatrist Ernst Kreschmer, and this man studied over 10,000 patients. So that German psychiatrist found that the majority of paranoid schizophrenics had more athletic bodies. Continuing with the lines that this man would be in his mid to late 40s, that would then give him neither a fat nor skinny body. After studying the letters, Brussels stated that because the letters were uniform and neat, the man himself would also be very neat, almost to a fault. He wouldn't be flashy with clothing or attitude. He would be an exemplary employee, always on time. However, he would have a history of work disputes. And another interesting facet of the letter was how the bomber wrote his W's. Each block letter was very uniform and neat, except for the letter W, which was very rounded at the bottom, almost like a woman's breasts. Brussel concluded that the bomber had an Oedipus complex, and he said that the man would be single, possibly never having a girlfriend or even a virgin. The man might even live with female relatives or his mother, whom he loved more than anyone in life. Due to this complex, the bomber would despise male authorities who, in his mind, would represent his father. Even the placement of the bombs in the theater seats was almost sexually symbolic. He thought it might symbolize penetration of the mother or castration of the father. So Brussel was able to explain that even though the bomber was angry with Con Edison, he would take his anger out by planting bombs everywhere because it would almost be like guilt by association. The bomber thought that many other companies were conspiring with Con Edison. The man wouldn't tell anyone about his plans other than in the letters. It would be like something he kept to himself and shared only with God. It was like divine retribution. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. In his head. So, because of his outrageous beliefs, he would also have a contempt for others, making it hard for him to hold a job, leading to impoverishment. Despite being poor, he would always dress in a very proper manner. The police also thought the man might be of German descent due to the way he wrote his G's. They had slashes like an equal sign. Brussel agreed due to the lack of any kind of American slang in the letters. Brussel told Finney that he thought the man was Slavic, basing us on the fact that most anarchists at this time were Eastern European, and they used bombs as their weapon of choice. Combined with the findings of knives at the bomb scene at the theater, he was convinced it was a Slav. And since many Slavic immigrants lived north of New York City and Connecticut, he concluded the man would live there. So, in conclusion, the man would be a middle-aged Slav, most likely living in Connecticut, with a history of trouble at jobs, living in poverty, most likely with a female relative. His attire would be prim and old-fashioned. Oh, and by the way, the man would be found wearing a double-breasted suit, completely buttoned. But, he added, these were all inferential deductions and not infallible. Brussel then urged the captain to put this profile in the paper because he said the man wouldn't be able to keep from responding and expressing his own beliefs about himself. And needless to say, this gave the captain a lot to think about. I mean, had he done the right thing by consulting the psychiatrist or was he mad himself? In spite of all of his doubts, Captain Finney followed through and the profile was published in the New York Times on December 25th, 1956. And the next day, the New York American Journal printed an open letter urging the man to give himself up and cooperate with the police. Just like Dr. Brussel predicted, the man wrote back, he refused to give himself up, still hellbent on seeking his revenge on Con Edison. On January 10th, a second letter was published, along with the bomber's original reply. This one urging him to once again comply and turn himself in. Now, slowly but surely, police were getting more and more tidbits of information. When the bomber responded this time, he said that he was hurt on the job at Con Edison to the point where he was permanently disabled and they refused to pay his workers' compensation. So, out of frustration, he made the bombs. Once again, the police and newspapers repeated the process of printing an open letter and the bombers' previous responses. 
This time, the bomber went into more detail about his injuries. He claimed that when he was hurt at Con Edison, he'd been on the ground, unnoticed for hours on the cold concrete. And due to this long wait to be helped, he developed pneumonia and then subsequently tuberculosis. This time he gave the critical date of September 5, 1931, as the date of his compensation case and the, quote, perjury of his co-workers. And with this, he declared that the bombings would not continue. So, of course, the police were working with Con Edison to dig deeper into their files and to try to find the bomber's identity. On January 18, 1957, Con Edison file clerk Alice Kelly hit gold. She found a batch of cases titled Troublesome. These contained all the workers' comp cases that had any kind of threat towards the company. One file was marked in red with the words permanent disability and injustice. This employee was injured in a boiler explosion on September 5, 1931. And the complaints of the employee used the words dastardly deeds. Do you recall hearing those? The file belonged to George Matetsky. This is an employee who worked from 1929 to 1931. They found their mad bomber, and you'll be amazed at how accurate Dr. Brussel's profile was. George Matetsky was born on November 2, 1903 in Connecticut to Lithuanian parents. And after World War I, he enlisted in the Marines. At that time, he worked as an electrician at the U.S. Consulate in Shanghai. Upon returning home, he began work as a mechanic for Consolidated Edison and Waterbury, Connecticut. Now, while there, he lived with his two sisters, who were both unmarried. So, here we have confirmation of Brussels' idea that the man was Slavic and would be living with female relatives. In 1931, Matetsky was working at Con Edison's Hellgate generating plant as a generator wiper when this boiler backfire blast injured the man, knocking him to the ground. He did collect sick pay for about 26 weeks, but he lost his job for not being able to return to work. His pneumonia turned into tuberculosis. However, his workers' compensation claims were rejected because apparently he had taken too long to file them. Three subsequent appeals were also denied. Three of his co-workers had testified at his appeals. Thus began the hatred for Con Edison. On January 21st in 1957, around 11 p.m., police went to arrest George Matesky at his home in Waterbury, Connecticut. So plainclothes policemen pounded on the door at 17 Fourth Street. Since it was late, the man came to the door dressed in his pajamas, buttoned all the way to his neck, covered by a bathrobe. The man smiled and said, I know why you fellows are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. He led them to his bedroom, where they found notebooks with writing almost identical to the Mad Bomber's notes. Also found were socks matching ones that they found around the bombs left at Con Edison. So they urged the man to dress, since he would have to come down to the precinct. The man complied, returning dressed in a red necktie, brown cardigan, brown shoes, and a double-breasted suit. Oh, and by the way, that suit was completely buttoned up. Police came to discover that Matetsky lived in a somewhat impoverished neighborhood, had never had a girlfriend, and had a history of disputes with his neighbors. 
His two sisters supported him by working at a button factory. The man believed he was on this crusade to right the wrongs that had been done to him. While speaking to the police, he confessed to making all the bombs, which he oddly referred to as units. Matetsky also gave police the location of 15 other bombs at Con Edison that had never been discovered. Rumors say that there's one in the Empire State Building that has never been found. Because his initial bombs at Con Edison weren't publicized in the newspapers, Matetsky said he began placing bombs in very public places in New York to gain attention. While they were at his home, police found parts for a bomb that would have been his biggest yet. And this one was intended for the New York Coliseum. He was subsequently charged with 47 counts, including attempted murder, as well as other charges like concealed weapons charges. Matetsky was indeed found to be a paranoid schizophrenic by a court-appointed psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital. He was then found unfit to stand trial. From there, he was sent to Matawan Hospital for the criminally insane in Beacon, New York. By this time, his tuberculosis was so advanced that he had to be carried to the hospital, and he was only expected to live a few weeks. But the stay at the hospital was very beneficial to his health. His tuberculosis cleared up considerably during his stay. However, that stay didn't do much for his mental health. But despite that, he was very well behaved the entirety of his time there. Matetsky stayed at the hospital until 1973. That same year, the Supreme Court ruled that unless a jury finds a defendant dangerous, they cannot be kept by the New York State Department of Correctional Services and Matetsky had never been given a jury trial before he was committed to Matawan, so he was then sent to the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center. While there, he was found to be harmless to society, and because he had served a very decent bit of a sentence, he was released with the condition that he make regular appointments with the Department of Mental Hygiene. Upon his release, he moved back to his home in Waterbury, Connecticut, where he lived until his death at the age of 90, in 1994. James A. Brussel earned the respect that was due to him from his profiling of Matetsky, especially by the press who had dubbed him the Sherlock Holmes of the couch. Brussel became a pioneer for criminologists to come. But with success comes pressure to maintain that magic. Brussel wrote in his 1968 memoir, At times, I was almost sorry that I had been so successful in describing George Matetsky, for I had to live up to that success. It wasn't always easy, and sometimes it was impossible. There were times when I made mistakes. There were times when I simply lacked enough information to build an image of the criminal. Yes, there were cases on which I failed, but I continued to succeed often enough so that police kept coming to me. Brussel continued to help police as well as continuing his work for the Department of Mental Hygiene way up until his death in 1982. His work at the department even led him to cross paths with George Matetsky at Matawan. Brussel described Matetsky as calm, smiling, condescending. Apparently, the man downplayed his bombs, saying that they never were powerful enough to hurt anyone. In the end, this case proved to be pivotal for the world of criminal profiling. Brussels' risk laid the groundwork for future profilers to be taken seriously by law enforcement. Because of efforts like his, 
we now have greats like John Douglas and Robert Ressler from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, and that itself was pioneering. Anyone who has watched Mindhunter or read the books by both men know that struggle to bring profiling into fruition. Russell can even be thanked in a very weird way for the character of Hannibal Lecter because Thomas Harris was so influenced by criminal profiling. Thankfully, Russell made the choice to take this huge risk to his career and reputation of profile. He may not be a household name, but he served an important purpose. That was the case of the Mad Bomber of New York. I had never heard of the case until I'd seen this Smithsonian special, and I found it so fascinating. That's part of what makes true crime so very interesting, finding out what makes a criminal tick. Because of men like James A. Brussel, we were given the tools to find these answers. So there is a whole book by Michael Cannell called Incendiary about this case, if you'd like a more in-depth read. So thank you so much for listening. I'm glad to be back. I took a good bit of time off, but I plan to bring you new content on a regular basis. If you like the podcast, join the Red Rum Blonde discussion group on Facebook. I want to welcome new member James. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. I want to give a special shout out to Salvatore for checking up on me and to Jen on Instagram. I appreciate you guys. So thank you so much for listening and catch you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.